Florida for vacation, and their only son turned 18. Well, his six little kids, four sisters, they took him to a nightclub to go dancing, and somebody started messing with one of his sisters, so he went over there to give him a blow, and the guy got thrown out. Well, the guy waited for him outside the club, and he'd come up and mess with the sister again, and the boy got involved again, and the guy wound up, I can't remember what Alan told me, if he shot him or knifed him, but killed him Kay. right away. So, I want to say his last name's Paul. Just put it on the, it doesn't matter if you don't know the names, you find out later on, that's fine, but... We'll pray, and the Lord knows. Yes, ma'am. All right. Um, let's open to the book of Titus. I've had a number of people ask me what happened to my nose. I went bear hunting while I was up there, but I didn't find any bears. Um, I didn't really go bear hunting. We were looking for them, though. We did go on a most excellent hike, I will say that, and full of adventure. We thought we lost one of our members of our party, Victoria, my daughter, newlywed, thought she lost her newlywed husband, seriously, it was quite an adventure, but uh, he thought he lost us and went back to the car, and and, uh, we thought he fell off the mountain and got killed, and no, well, she did, (laughs) so we had a grand adventure, and uh, no, I didn't get scratched by a bear, it was just a, a limb that I didn't see because of my hat was pulled down too far over my head. So no big adventure there, but uh, my wife did not hit me in the nose. That, see, everybody thought that. Everybody thought, Mr. Keene, he's like, he said, what do you have to say? You're married, see? So, but no, no, it wasn't my wife. It was just a, a limb on the mountain. All right, let's open our Bibles to Titus. Um, This place we went was really cool. It was a it's a it's a place this church built, and it's uh, for pastors and different people. It's really it's called the refuge, and it's really a place for people to go and get restored. And you know, people that maybe have been through some things, they just need some time away. And and uh, it was really amazing. It was out in the middle of nowhere, literally. Um, they had scripture all over engraved all on the walls and the trim, and you just sat there, and anywhere you looked, there was the Word of God, and it was, it was really nice, it was just a ministry of their church, and um, very, very gracious and generous, so um, Pastor Ed and Barbara Richardson, maybe just say a prayer for them and for their church, uh, what an awesome ministry that they offer to uh, leaders in the body of Christ and the different ones that, that need uh, a refuge. So it really was great. Thank you for enabling us to get away for a week and go. And uh, sorry I didn't have my phone. I had no phone service up there, and it was kind of bittersweet. But then after a while, it's like I can't do anything about it, so I just turned my phone off and didn't have one. How many of you ever do that, just turn your phone off and never have one? See, Now, that's very few people do that. And you think about not too many years ago, we lived in a time when if you left your home, you didn't have a phone. You had to stop at a 7-Eleven or someplace and use the pay phone. Uh, But now, you know, we have our phones and we're connected all of the time. And so when you're not, it's really, you, you feel like this separation. But you know, it's really good. I would encourage you to take time sometimes just to 
be disconnected and not be distracted by life. Amen? Titus chapter 2. We're uh, down in verse 9, Titus chapter 2, verse 9. And we're going, to talk, uh, we're going to talk about the grace of God today. We're going to talk also about uh, here. Let me just read verse 9 to you, verses 9 and 10. We're going to start there, Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that, Lord, even as you said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, Lord, we ask today, as we look at the eternal word of God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds, bring enlightenment, teach us, and guide us, reveal truth to us that we may be set free. Lord, from the things that would hold us and bind us that are not of truth. We ask this, that you would be glorified in your church above and beyond all things. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. So we're commanded in the word of God. This is our commission to make disciples. We're commanded to make disciples. This is the great commission of Matthew chapter 28. So we're commanded by God in his word to become disciples. Uh, to make a disciple, you've got to be a disciple, right? So we're commanded to make disciples. And that necessitates that we become disciples ourselves. Discipleship is a way of life. Now what we find a lot of times taking place in the church is we're trying to make converts. Now I want you to think about this. Discipleship is a way of life. Conversion is an event. Your conversion from darkness to light, from death to life, your conversion was an event. It was a moment in time when you went literally from death to life, from darkness to light. We're not commanded to make converts. We're commanded to make disciples. Discipleship is simply a step. It's the first step in that process. So discipleship begins with us. It begins where? It begins here in our own hearts, in our own minds. It begins in our home. We've talked a lot as we've gone through the book of Titus about the home, about families, about the exhortation of older men to train up younger men and older women to train up younger women. And that applies to the home, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, but it also applies to the body of Christ. We look at the younger among us, and that, that's not always an age thing. Someone who is young in the Lord, it doesn't matter whether they're old in, in the chronology of time, but those who are more mature in the faith or to help those come up who are less mature in the faith. It works in every sense of the word. So it begins with us in our home, it's reinforced in the church, it overflows into our community, and it touches, discipleship touches all areas in every aspect of our life. And so here in verse 9, Paul is addressing, he says, exhort bondservants. The word for bondservant 
is simply, it means a slave, this word doulos. In your King James Bible, it's always translated servant. In your New King James and other translations, it's going to be translated bond servant. But what that word literally means, what it literally says, is slave. You'll have some translations that will actually call it like it is, slave, exhort slaves. We don't like that word, do we? Paul said, I am the bondservant of Christ. What he really said was, I am the doulos of Christ, or I am the slave of Christ. And see, we, we kind of have a problem with that because then we think of the scriptures, for instance, in John 8, where Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, how can I be free and be a slave at the same time? But yet Paul says in Romans, he said, present your members as slaves of righteousness unto God. Don't present them as slaves of unrighteousness. So it's not a contradiction. It's very consistent. When I have been set free from the slavery of sin and death, I am now a slave of God. But I have in that process been given the very righteousness of God, the very life of Christ. This is what sets me free. From what? Jesus didn't come to set us free so that we could do our own will. It's what we think a lot of times. He didn't come to set us free to do our own will. He came to set us free from sin and death. We were in bondage to sin and death. We were slaves to sin and death, and there was no way in our own will and our own power that we could escape that. So he didn't set me free from that so that I could now just do my own thing in life. He set me free from that so that I would not be in bondage to sin and death. And he imparted his life to me. And this is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. Well, where is the Spirit of the Lord now if you are in Christ? Who dwells in you? Christ dwells in you, how? By the Spirit of God. So if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, are you free? Yes, you are. Are you a slave of God? Yes, you are. What are you free from then? You're not free to do your own will. That's, when, when, that's putting ourselves back under bondage to sin and death. Because it's not my will that I've come to do. It's not my will that I was created to do. Whose will are we created to do? The will of God. How do we know that? Do we, have a, do we have a scriptural precedent for that? How about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if this cup, Father, if this cup can pass from me, please let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be, to be done. He said, I didn't come to do my own will. He says, as a matter of fact, I don't say anything. I don't do anything that I don't hear my Father say first that I don't see my Father do first. For the Son of Man did not come to do His own will. He came to do the will of the Father. Jesus was free. But He was, He had bound Himself to the will of the Father. He didn't consider that bondage. He considered that freedom. He was free from His own will. And He was bound to the will of His Father. We are 
set free from our own will, and we are bound in Christ to the will of God. That is freedom, though if we don't understand that spiritually, if we are thinking of it in natural terms because we want to do our own thing, then we're going to have a problem with that. That's why in a lot of environments in the church where we preach and teach behavior modification, we have people sitting there. We most often kind of reference this to young people. You know, and we got young, but it's not just young people. It's not just teenagers and kids. We got adults that want to do their own thing. And they'll call it God and they'll call it whatever they want to justify it. But the bottom line is, I want to do my will. I don't really care what God says. I don't care what his word says. I'm just going to not pay attention to that part of the book and then call what I'm doing God. Well, we don't let our kids get away with that. And so we have kids who get upset with us as parents, right? How many of you parents have ever been there? When you told your, your child that this is what you will for him or her to do, but, but now all of a sudden that child does not, doesn't want to follow your will because he's got, she's got a will of their own and they will to do something different. Guess what happens? We get a little conflict there, right? Hey, kids, listen, it's not just you. It's all of us. If I go through life and I decide that I want to do my own will, my own thing, I'm 51 years old, it doesn't matter. This isn't just a a teenage and adolescent thing. This is a human condition. The Bible calls it sin. When I, regardless of how old I am or what I'm doing, insist on doing my own will in opposition to the will of God, I am in sin. And I am in bondage to that sin. But when I submit my own will to the will of God, when I submit my will to His, and I say, nevertheless, it's not that I don't have a will that I want to do, nevertheless, in spite of that, not my will, but your will be done. When we submit that, when we submit our will to the Father, Kids, what does you submitting your will to the Father in heaven look like? It's you submitting your will to your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So, children, when you submit your will to your parents, you are actually submitting your will to the Father in heaven. Children, when you refuse to submit your will to your parents, whether you think of it this way or not, you are in rebellion to your Father in heaven because your Father's will in heaven is for you to be obedient to your parents. The Father's will for me, well, my parents are not living any longer. Both my mom and my dad are dead, so am I free now to do what I want because I don't have parents? No. We all have a Father in heaven. How has he revealed his will to us? He has revealed his will by his word. Well, somebody came up to me the other day and they told me, thus says the Lord, so I'm going to believe them. Well, you better be really careful before you believe them because what is the test for all things? I'll give you the answer to that. It's in the the book of Hebrews chapter 1. 
Verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past, everyone say times past, who spoke in time past to the fathers, how? By the prophets, has in these last days, say in these last days. Do you know that includes our day right here today? We're in the last days. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Where has the son revealed His word to us right here. Who causes that word to come alive and be illuminated in us? The spirit of God that's on the inside of you. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You don't ever have to pray about, wonder what God's will is. Find it right here. And if somebody tells you something contrary to this, you don't have to wonder whether they are a prophet of God or speaking on God's behalf. If they are contradicting this word, they are not speaking on God's behalf. They're not. But how are you, Christian, going to know what the will of God is if you don't ever get into this book and eat his word? Hide his word in your heart. You're going to just trust what's on the radio and the TV? You're going to trust what so-and-so told you? Don't. God has graciously given us his word. And we live in a country where it's everywhere. I mean, I just came from a place where it was even carved into the walls. I mean, all I had to do was sit there and look all around me, and I could just read the Word everywhere. I I mean, everywhere we went, the Word was there. And that's nice, but there's still no substitute for taking the Scripture and opening them and allowing God by His Spirit to speak to you, to your heart, to your mind by His Word. So Paul is addressing these slaves, these bondservants, that they should what? That they should be obedient to their own masters. When they're obedient to their own masters, are they being obedient to God? Yeah. What if they have crummy masters? He doesn't address that. Is that, that like a glaring omission to you? That's like kids saying, well, but, but, my, but my parent, you know, uh, doesn't matter. Be obedient to their own masters, well-pleasing in all things, diligent, faithful, doing all things as unto the Lord. That's what this this thought is here, being well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. In other words, be humble, be respectful, be submitted, not pilfering. That means not stealing or embezzling or keeping back for yourself. Oh, wow, look, I'm going to keep this one back for myself. It's the best. Y'all ever seen Nacho Libre? It's the best. This is the best. I'm going to keep it for me. No, that's pilfering. He said, but it's not really stealing. I'm just keeping the best for me. That's what this means. Don't do that. Paul says, slaves, don't do that. Don't keep the best portion for you later on. Give the best and trust God that he will. Take care of you above and beyond what you can set back for yourself. Showing all good fidelity. In other words, showing all good faithfulness to God and to men. 
This is what Paul is addressing to these slaves. Now, we don't, in America, we can't say we don't have slavery in the world. You know there's more slavery in the world now than there ever has been in, at any point in human history. Did you guys know that? There are more slaves on planet Earth now, real slaves now on planet Earth than there ever has been at any point in human history. So we live in America, we think slavery is a thing of the past, it doesn't exist anymore. No, it still exists. But Paul is not just talking, he's talking to slaves, but he, he wrote this for slaves, but he also wrote it for who? For us. He, Paul didn't write this letter to us, but he wrote it for us. He wrote it to Titus, a pastor on the island of Crete. But God in his grace and his infinite wisdom and his eternal purpose preserved the letter Paul wrote to Pastor Titus. He preserved it for us today. Because even though it wasn't written to us, it applies for our lives, doesn't it? So Paul is commanding that these slaves in their service will serve in such a way that they will adorn. This word adorn, look at this. At the end of chapter, at the end of verse 9, that they may adorn, verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. This word adorn is a real interesting word. It's kind of hard to put a hard and fast meaning to it, but, but here's the concept. It's hard to relate from the Greek to the English what this word really means. But it, it best means to put in proper order or to decorate or to garnish or to trim. So at Christmas time, how many of you put a Christmas tree up in your house? What do you do with the Christmas tree? You adorn it. You put the trimming on it. You put the decorations on it. I mean, the tree is nice, right? But it's not a Christmas tree until you adorn it. It doesn't make it more of a tree. It doesn't change the nature or the character of what it is, but it does something so that if somebody walks past and you just have a green tree stuck in the corner of your living room, they might look and say, oh, that's a nice tree. I'm not sure why you have a tree in your living room. But. but if they walk into your house and they see a tree adorned with everything, they know automatically that it's a what? A Christmas tree. It's not more of a tree, but, but now it's adorned with something that speaks. It speaks something to the people that see it. This is what Paul is telling these slaves. This is what God is, is writing for us. This is what he is speaking to Titus about for us. He says, live your life in such a way that your life speaks something. That when people see your life, there is something that jumps out and speaks about who Christ is. Not who you are, but who Christ is. See, we always want to go there and it's all about me. No, it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about him. It's about Christ. What, what this is about is you living your life in such a way that when people see your life, it speaks Something about Christ. Paul says, slaves, live your life, serve, be obedient, be well-pleasing, don't answer back, don't pilfer, 
show all good fidelity, faithfulness to God and to men, so that what? So that your life may adorn the doctrine or the teaching of God. In other words, these guys that are your masters, these people that you serve and work with and live with every day, they know what you're professing to be. Let your life be adorned in such a way that it, it adorns the doctrine of God. It doesn't take away from it. Well, I know what they say with their mouth, but their actions are communicating something totally different. This is what Paul tells them in the end of chapter 1, verse 16. They confess with their mouth Christ, but with their actions, with their deeds, they deny him. This is what he's telling these slaves. He says, don't let your mouth say one thing, but your life speak another thing. Let the way you live your life, the way you serve your masters, let that adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Not just the way you come to church and sing your songs, not just the way you come to church and raise your hands and appear so spiritual, but, but as you're serving your master in the nitty-gritty of life, and he's cussing you, and he is overbearing to you. How many of you work in environments where you could say, gee, it sounds like my, my boss at work. I mean, none of you work with people who ever cuss, right? None of you work with people who are ever overbearing, right? who have false expectations, right? Now, no one ever experiences that here, right? Uh-huh. This is the human condition. This, see, you might not be a slave in the sense that Paul is writing to Titus, but are you in the marketplace? Does God want your life to adorn the doctrine of God? Does God want your life to confirm and show the proper order in the beauty of the doctrine of God in all things. Not because you're compelled to, but because the love of Christ in you causes you to do that. So regardless of our condition or our circumstance, we're never to forsake, listen, we're never to forsake the character of Christ in all that we do. Wherever we may find ourselves, at home, at work, it doesn't matter where. We don't forsake the nature and the character of Christ. Come on in and find you a seat. Praise God. Hey, well, if you guys want, the children are next door and we'll have someone take them over there or they are welcome to stay in here with you guys. So regardless of our condition or regardless of our circumstance, we don't ever forsake the character of Christ in everything that we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul, Paul writes this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He didn't say do some things, do the convenient things. He says do all to the glory of God. That applies whether you're seven years old, or whether you're 77 years old. Amen? It applies to us today in the marketplace. Paul is writing to slaves, but, but listen, this applies to, 
to us today in the marketplace, in the worship place, in the home place, in every place that we may adorn and set in order the doctrine of God in all things, that our life would speak something of Christ that would cause the world to take notice. This is what the gospel of grace will produce in us as we are transformed by its power. Amen? The gospel is the power of God to salvation. What is this power that Paul is talking about? It's the power of a transformed life. It's not good enough for me to just guilt you into changing your behavior to threaten you with hell or to entice you with heaven and say, now you need to change your behavior so you don't have to go to hell one day and you get to go to heaven. That's not good enough. That's not the gospel. That doesn't transform anybody. That might scare you for a little bit, but you know what's going to happen? You're going to become hardened. You're going you're to lose that fear. You just will. But if the love of God has been poured out into your heart, if the gospel, the powerful gospel, comes to you and transforms you, then you're going to do these things not out of compulsion. You're going to do them out of love. Out of whose love? Out of the love of God that is in you. You're going to love that overbearing boss. That overbearing family member, that overbearing friend, whoever, whatever. This is what the gospel of grace will produce in us as we're transformed by its power. Let's go to verse 11, Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. This is Paul's exhortation to Pastor Titus. He says, look, do this. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Don't be afraid of what they're going to say. Let no one despise you. In other words, don't bend or bow to the pressure. Speak these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Now let's go back to verse 11. And I want you to look at this phrase, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So let's talk a little bit about the grace of God. Now, as you guys know, we're not going to get in a hurry as we go through Titus, okay? We're not going to finish Titus chapter 2 today. My goal is not to race through Titus. My goal is that we go through Titus together and we try to get everything we can from the Word of God that is being delivered to us, spoken to us through this letter. Amen? So, the grace of God, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. That's an awesome statement. So let's think about the grace of God. The word for grace in the Greek implies a favor freely done. This is what grace means. It's a favor 
freely done, without claim or expectation of return. In other words, we could say it like this. It's a favor freely done with no strings attached. It's just grace. If it's a favor done with strings attached, that's not grace, is it? There's an expectation that you're going to have to pay something in return, and that's not grace. That's not what grace is. It doesn't matter what we want to put our, in terms of our definition. See, this is, what, this is the mistake we made with, with the Bible. Today, we read the Bible, and we apply our own definitions to biblical terms, and we define things based on our understanding and our culture today, or our tradition, or what we've been taught, but not according to what is being originally conveyed here. If I got to pay it back, it's not grace. If I got to earn it, it's not grace. If I've got to do something to maintain it, to keep it, to get it, it's not grace. If God is standing up there going, now listen, Jeff, all you got to do is this, and then I'll give you my grace. That's not grace. He didn't freely give it to me. He gave it to me because I did something to get it. Do you understand that's not grace? So the grace of God. This is a beautiful statement, church. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So this word grace means a favor freely given, freely done without any strings attached. It's freely conferred, finding its only motive. Listen to this. This is, this is, what, this is what Socrates said about grace. Now, why, why are you saying this? Because he was a Greek, and he understood the Greek language. And this was the Greek concept of grace. And here's what he said. Finding its only motive in the bounty and free-heartedness of the giver. He said, this is what grace is. Finding its only motive in the bounty and free-heartedness of the giver. Paul says, the grace of, this is the grace of God. God has given his grace to us out of the free bounty and free-heartedness. He's the giver. But now here's an interesting thing. In the Greek culture, do you know who received grace? Grace was only conferred to those who were considered friends. So I consider all of you my friends, okay? So I don't have a problem giving you grace because you're my friends. My family, sure, I'm going to give grace to my family because they're my family, right? This was the context of grace in the Greek culture. You extended, you conferred grace to your friends. No, no brainer. No, well, I don't have to think about that. Kind of like what Jesus said. Hey, it's easy to love those who love you, right? But now when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the incarnation of Christ, and Christ comes... Grace takes on a different level. It, it, it's not just conferred now to our friends. In the context of the scripture, we see grace being bestowed upon those who were less than friends, even upon our enemies. 
Now, the Greeks might not have understood this, but, but that didn't just become a reality at the incarnation of Jesus. Because what's it say in the Old Testament? In the Psalms, it rains only on the just, and the unjust remain in famine. No, what's it say? It rains on the just and the unjust. The same sun that warms me in the morning, guess what? It warms my enemies in the morning too. The same rain that that brings life to the earth and causes a seed to bud and a harvest to come so that I can have bread to strengthen my mortal body, that same rain comes to my enemy so that my enemy can also strengthen his mortal body, perhaps to do me in. The writers of Scripture understood this. The grace of God was shed abroad. It's just that some people couldn't see it. Some people couldn't understand it. And Paul is writing here and he says, hey, the grace of God that brings salvation, not just the grace of God that brings rain or warmth, but the grace of God. Now, here is a grace that's different than the grace that brought rain, different than the grace that that warmed me on a cold morning. This is the grace that brings salvation. This Favor freely done, without claim, without any expectation of of, of return. The grace of God has that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Not just upon our friends, but upon all men. Friend and foe alike. Romans 5.10 For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Much more, look at the language here. Much more, when we were enemies, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. If God did that when we were his enemies, how much more now that we are his children? What is this life that has been imparted to us going to do for us, going to do in us? So when the grace of God came, were we God's friends or were we God's enemies? We were not his friends. How do we know? Because that's what the scripture says. The book of Romans, there is none good, no, not one. I wasn't a, I thought I was a good guy, right? I mean, I never really cheated anybody, never really stole from anybody, certainly never killed anybody. Things I did do, you know, I justified them. You know, just being me, you know, just a kid. I, everybody wants to have fun, you know. It's no big deal. It's not that big a deal, you know. No, see, there was none good, no, not one. When God came, when Jesus came, there were none Good. Never had been, never was at that point, and never were to be. We talked about this in Bible study this morning. You, you, the rabbi wrote the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And I always say, the book should not be titled that. The book shouldn't be Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People. The, the book should be titled Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? Because Why do good things happen to bad people implies that we're all born good and just bad things happen to us. What the Bible teaches is that we're all born bad and 
why should, the question isn't why did God hate Esau? The question is why did he love Jacob? Because they were both deserved, they did both deserve to be hated by God because they were both bad. But God loved one and hated the other. Why did he love one? Because Jacob certainly, you ever read your Bible? Read about Jacob. That brother did not deserve the love of God. But yet God loved him anyways. Don't think you were born into this world deserving the love of God because you didn't deserve it, but neither did I. What then brought it to me? The grace of God brought salvation. The grace of God brought salvation. God wasn't up there going, now, Jeff, if you'll just know. I was the enemy of God. I was blind to him. I was deaf to him. I was dead to him. There was nothing in my heart that wanted him. Not one thing. And he came to me as a total enemy in death and darkness. And he brought by grace, no strings attached, he brought salvation to me. If you're here today and you're in Christ and you can say, I love Jesus, you say that by the grace of God and by no other way. This is the grace of God that brings salvation. While we were his enemies, he extended grace to us. This is what the scripture means when it says, he will do above and beyond exceedingly more than we can think or ask. Listen, brothers, sisters, that's not your Cadillac or your new Dooley pickup truck. That is the grace of God that brings salvation because you didn't deserve the life that Jesus gave you, but he gave it to you anyways. And it is so amazing in your humanness, in my humanness, in my finite brain, I cannot even begin to imagine in my wildest expectation, in my wildest imagination, what God has given to me in Jesus Christ. He has done exceedingly abundantly above all that I could think or ask when he brought to me the grace of God that brings salvation. This is the grace of God. And this is why Paul makes his well-known declaration, Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians 2.8-10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If we could all read Greek and understand the Greek structure of the language, we would know that the gift of God is the salvation. That's what the gift refers to. Your salvation is a gift from God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship. What does that draw us back to? Listen, if we were, if we were reading this letter 2,000 years ago, we understand we are his workmanship. This, Paul makes reference to this in his letter to the Romans. He's quoting Jeremiah. What in the world does the pot have anything to say to the potter? We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. This is the grace of God. Salvation is a gift from God given by His grace. Freely conferred to His children who were once His enemies but now reconciled from the bounty of His heart and of His love. Colossians 1.21, you can 
See the scripture reference there, how we have been reconciled to God from the bounty of his heart. James 1.17, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. You know what? Do you know what this does? This should make us stand in total wonder and awe of God. Do you guys ever, I'm a pastor, so sometimes I get to go to court with people. And many years ago, I had an opportunity to go to court with a, a friend of mine, a brother in Christ. This was a big deal. This was federal court. I'm telling you what, you just walk in that courtroom and you realize the magnitude of what's taking place. You go and you stand before that judge. Now, this wasn't a life or death situation, but it didn't matter. I'm sitting in that courtroom, I'm like, oh, man. This brother's fixing to get judged here. And the law, the law is the law. And I'll never forget the judge. And the judge said to this person, they said, you know, I really wish I could extend grace to you. But the law is the law. And I am bound by the law to sentence you according to the law. In other words, what the judge said is, I I don't want to do this. I really don't think I'll ever see you in this courtroom again. But the law demands you're going to be sentenced. Do you understand that every one of us deserve the death sentence? There's not one of us. There's not one human being ever born, well, except one. Remember that? Why do bad things happen to good people? Should be why do good things happen to bad people? Caleb reminded me of a quote this morning in Bible study. A pastor said, there's only, how did it go? There's only one that's ever been good. And he voluntarily basically gave up his life to allow something bad to happen to him. There was only one ever born that was truly good. There was only one ever born that, that didn't deserve any bad thing to happen to him, and he voluntarily accepted the bad. That's Jesus. There's only one that's ever been born good. And bad things didn't happen to him because he deserved for them to happen Bad things happen to him because he volunteered for them to happen. You know why? So that we could stand before the judge one day and we would not have a death sentence pronounced over us. But now, here's the thing. Does that mean you don't have to die? Mm -mm. 
Now, I'm not talking about physical death here either. We're all going to die physically one day, one way or the other. Jesus comes back, the blessed hope, the appearing of the, of the Lord. Listen, your physical body is going to be transformed. It's, it's going to pass away. But that's not the death I'm talking about. We're all required to die a death if we want to experience his life, and that is the death of the cross. Unless you are crucified with him, you can never be raised with him. But the point of your death is not punishment. It's not annihilation. It's not to give you what you deserve. The point of your death with him in the cross is to give you what you don't deserve. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That day when we stand before the Lord, we will have nothing to boast about. Oh, God, you know, I gave so much money to the church. Or, God, you know, I worked so hard for the church. Or, God, you know how long I prayed every day. I'm so proud of myself. Aren't you proud of me too, God? (laughs) No. We will have nothing to boast in. Because when we stand in his presence, you know what? The only thing I believe that we're going to be conscious of is his grace that brought salvation to us. Whether we believe it or not right now, there is not anything within us that deserves what he has given to us. But yet, by his grace, he has freely given it. And in that day, this is why when you read in the book of Revelation, here is the picture. The crowns that we receive, guess where they're going to go? They're going to go right back at his feet. Because we're going to realize, I don't deserve anything. I ain't going to be walking through heaven with some reward with a chest puffed up going, look at my reward. Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to be casting that reward right back at him because I'm going to know that it's only, only, only by his grace. I have nothing to boast in except the cross. This is what Paul says. I have no boast but in one thing, and that is in Christ and Christ crucified. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. The Father has always been a God of grace. Listen, we don't have a schizophrenic God, okay? We don't have a God with split personality. Some people think, well, the New Testament, it's a God of grace. But the Old Testament, it's a God of judgment. Wrong, wrong. Read, read. I encourage you. Listen, we're doing this right now. We started in Genesis. We're already up through Nehemiah. Just start reading your Bible every day. Don't, don't figure out whether you understand everything. Don't worry about that, okay? Just begin to read. Just begin to read slowly and meditate on, just read the story, okay? It won't take you long to realize that God is a God of grace from beginning to end. You'll read and, and you'll see where God sends the Israelites in there and tells them, listen, I know this sounds harsh, but... but We're adults, right? We can deal with reality. Can we not? He sends the children of Israel in there, and he says, kill them all, down to the children. Slaughter them all. Don't leave even an animal alive. Say, see, that's a God of judgment. But grace is coming. No. He sends them into the promised land. You know what he tells the children of Israel, his children? He said, you guys are are more vile, more disobedient, more deserving of the judgment that I had you inflict on those people, but I ain't going to give it to you. Though you deserve it, I'm going to give you the land, if you have faith, to take it. See, he didn't give them the land because they deserved the land. 
Matter of fact, God said over and over and over, if you'll take your time to read the Bible, he said, you children of Israel are more wicked than the people that you kicked out of this land. They did not deserve the land. They did not deserve his favor, but yet he gave it to them. Why? It's called grace. It's called grace. They didn't get it because they deserved it. They weren't born with some special DNA that that caused them to be highly favored of God. No, God just said, I'm going to have grace on you. Ain't none of you deserve it, but I'm going to have grace on you. And I'm going to use you to teach my people who are my workmanship created in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world began. I'm going to bring you forth through the annals of time and history, and I'm going to make you a demonstration of my grace. And the world is going to see that you guys didn't get my favor and blessing because you deserved it. They're going to see that you got it in spite of the fact that you didn't deserve it. Just like every one of us here today who will name the name of Jesus have received salvation in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. And we received it by His grace. The Father has always been a God of grace. Grace describes in one word the heart and the will of God toward His children. The grace of God delivers us from the bondage of sin and death. It delivers us into the salvation that is found only in Christ. In Christ. The grace of God did not necessarily... We started out here in verse 10 talking about slaves, right? Verse 9. The grace of God did not necessarily deliver a slave from his slavery, but the grace of God empowered a slave to adorn the doctrine of God in all things, including his slavery. The grace of God does not always deliver us from all things. You guys understand that, right? If you live life long enough, you don't have to live very long, you're going to go through some things. And you're going to understand the grace of God does not deliver us from all things, but it most certainly empowers us to adorn the doctrine of God through, through all things. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, how I walk through that valley either will or will not adorn the doctrine of God. As I walk through the valley, the world is going to look at me and my life, my journey through the valley, even through the valley of the shadow of death, is going to declare something about Christ to the world. Here's where the church has really, has really gone off. We've made church about me, what it does for me. Well, I don't like the music. Well, I don't like the preacher. Well, I don't like the color of the walls. Well, I don't like the... Man, why didn't you... Look at that floor. Look at it. I don't like the way that floor looks. Well, I don't either. I don't like those little places either there, but you know what? The point of coming here is not about the floor. It's about Him. The point of your salvation is not about you. It's about Him. And if we will focus on Him, you will be taken care of. I promise you. I promise you that. The grace of God empowers us to gloriously persevere with hope through all things, even through the valley 
of the shadow of death. Nobody wants to go through the valley of shadow. But God never said, if, you, if you'll just love me hard enough, deep enough, long enough, I promise you'll never have to go through the valley again. No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Matter of fact, sometimes it seems like the more I love him, the more valley I go through. But the question is, what is my life speaking to those, my enemies? He has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My enemies are watching me go through the valley. What is my life speaking to this world and this world system about Christ in me, the hope of glory, as we walk through? Is our life adorning the doctrine of God in and through all things? This is the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation. Now it's 12 o'clock. It's actually 5 after. So next week, I want you to come back next week. We're going to talk about the grace of God that brings salvation. I really, really want to encourage you to come. Because this is really, really important for you to grasp with your spirit. And you can't do that on your own. This is why we trust God. This is why God gave us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been given to us to illuminate truth, to bring truth from a place of just being words on a page that I'm trying to get in this meathead up here to something that gets into my heart and my spirit and brings illumination to me and sets me free from the bondage of sin and death, from the bondage of this world. Only the Spirit of God can do that. Only by His grace will that happen. I'm going to leave you with this scripture, and I'll probably leave you with the same scripture next week. Go to Luke chapter 11. Some people have asked me, well, Pastor Jeff, how do I know if I've received the grace of God? I said, do you love Jesus? Yes. I said, then you've received it. Have you called upon his name? Yes. Uh, well, do I need to call longer? You know, my life is still kind of difficult. Maybe I just have a little bit of Jesus and I need more of Jesus. No, it's impossible. You, are, that, you know, I always tell, tell you this. It's like, you, you, you're either pregnant or you're not. You're not a little bit pregnant. You're pregnant or you're not pregnant. You either have Jesus or you don't have Jesus. Okay? Now, you might not comprehend the Jesus you have, but I promise you, you got all of him. You got the full Monty. You got the full thing. There ain't nothing left. The question is, do you, do you have a comprehension of that? See, this is why the Bible teaches us over and over and over and over that we must renew our mind. Because my mind can't comprehend the fullness that I have received in Christ. But as I allow the Spirit of God to renew my mind, to wash my brain, do you need to be brainwashed? Yes, you do. That's, that's scriptural. Let the washing of the water of the Word. <laughs> as your mind is renewed by the Spirit of God, you come into a fuller comprehension of the salvation that has been already delivered to you in Christ. Amen? Here, have you found Luke 11? Luke 11 Verse 10, actually, verse 9, Luke eleven nine. 9. So I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. 
to him who knocks, it will be opened. Verse 13, if then, being evil, you fathers, who's who he's talking to, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know what Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about salvation. To receive the Holy Spirit is to receive the grace of God that brings salvation. Well, how do I know whether I should ask for it or not? That's like saying, how do I know whether I should ask for my life or not? Ask. Seek. Knock. If you ask and you call upon his name, he will answer you. I promise he will. Not so that you can go off in life and do your own will. So that you can go through life and do his will. Amen. Let's all stand. So you're going to come back next week. We're going to talk about the grace of God that brings salvation. If you're here today, and maybe you have never cried out to the Lord. Maybe you've never called upon his name and asked him to save you. You say, is it that simple, Pastor Jeff? Yes, it's that simple. There's not a formula. There's no magic words. There's no magic handshake with the preacher. You might leave here today and still have questions. You might get home this afternoon and wake up from your nap if you take one. I don't know. And realize you need Jesus and call upon him right there on your bed in your heart. And I promise you the moment you do that, he will save you. Father, I just thank you for your truth. Your truth that sets men free. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the grace of God that brings salvation was personified in you. You are the grace of God. That brings salvation. And we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we understand, according to the word of God, according to the scripture, that there is not one person in this place that deserves your grace. Not one person in this place that deserves salvation. Not one person in this place that deserves any good or perfect gift from you. But God, by your grace, you have given it. And Lord Jesus, you said that if we will call upon your name. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I pray today, Lord, that those who are in this building have made that profession of trusting him. If there's any here that have not, I pray, God, that they would take the time to come forward today after this service and acknowledge you as their Lord and Savior. We can only do that by your grace. And we thank you for the grace that gives us that ability. Be glorified in your church, Lord, in all things we ask, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. Praise God. Come on, give the Lord a good hand.
Please remember to pray for Greg Young's healing. Uh, Greg, Barbara, Frankie hadn't been feeling well, but uh, Greg Young. Greg Young. I keep saying that name because I want that name in your heart and your mind. I want you to be praying for him. And we'll be giving you updates. Amen. God bless you. If you have any questions, if you have a question about anything we talked about today, about the scripture, uh, about anything I've said, please come. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. If you want prayer for anything, special prayer, big or small, it doesn't matter. I would love to pray with you. If you want to talk about Jesus and your salvation, come and let's do that. If you, if you are visiting, I know you guys came in. If you'd be so kind maybe to fill out a, a visitor's card or a, a connection card, I, I promise I won't like barrage you with junk mail or anything like that. God bless you. Have a great day, everybody. I'll see you next Sunday for the grace of God that brings salvation.